Welcome, everybody, to the latest Truth and Consequences podcast. And I'm really, um, really thrilled today to be joined by Eric Roshway, Distinguished Professor of History at University of California, Davis. Um, he's the author of eight books, um, mostly focused on U.S. history and the uh, New Deal, the Roosevelt administration. And today we're talking about his latest book that came out, I believe it was last month, uh, Why the New Deal Matters. So thank you for joining me today, Eric. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I'm just going to start with the most basic question that I think gets to the, the crux of what you, the book you've written. Why does the New Deal matter in 2021? <laughs> well, I think there are two reasons, and the, the, there are two reasons that I lay out in the book. One is that I think it's worth emphasizing to people how ubiquitous the New Deal is in our everyday lives. I think... Everyone, many, 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 many readers, many subscribers to your newsletter and your podcast will know that the New Deal is probably something that has a legacy nearby. You know, people probably know that there is a grand public work. Let's say it's the Triborough Bridge, maybe, or let's say that there are probably nearby some WPA statehouse murals. Uh, you know, in, in Boston, you can find the WPA murals in the statehouse. There are post offices. People know that. They see plaques. So people have a vague sense that the New Deal has a legacy that they could visit. And of course, I think probably at some level, people remember that Social Security, old age pensions has something to do with the New Deal. But I think that dramatically undersells uh, the importance of the New Deal in our lives. Just to do a quick rundown, um, if you have a bank account, it is insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is, of course, a product of the New Deal. If you have a mortgage, it is backed at some level by the Federal National Mortgage Association, which is a creation of the New Deal. If you have ever bought stocks, you have been able to do that because of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a creation of the New Deal. If you have ever, in fact, handled any banknote issued by the Federal Reserve, you know, this is a creation of the very first days of Roosevelt's administration, uh, you know, when he overhauled the dollar and it, you know, in ways that remain true today. And you can move off of finance and says, if you have ever earned minimum wage, guess what? That's the new deal. If you have ever joined a union, that is owing to the new deal. And then of course, yes, there are old age pensions, unemployment insurance, disability insurance. And then of course, there's the physical fabric of our lives. You know, the pattern of land use in this country of whether you live on, on in, a, in a suburb where you'll probably be connected to the nation's road networks by some kind of New Deal built road or the New Deal sidewalks on which you can walk, or if you are dealing with some sort of public lands, whether it's state or federal parks, those were certainly shaped, if not actually built by the New Deal. The patterns of uh, land ownership for Native nations and their modern day sovereignty originates with the New Deal. Uh, you know, the pattern of today's politics, where Black voters are almost uh, chiefly Democrats, owes to the New Deal. Uh, as I say, it is, as I say in the book, it's, you know, it's like a fish who doesn't know that he's wet, right? We move right. through a world that was created by the New Deal. And so I think we underestimate, you know, the extent to which we rely on uh, the kind of ideological underpinnings. Uh, of the New Deal, which is the second thing I was going to say as to why the New Deal is important. The first was that it's everywhere. And the second is, you know, we have forgotten, I think, the extent to which the New Deal was a program to reinvigorate American democracy, right? And um, because I think for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to talk about, people talk about, oh, it was a program to relieve the depression. It was, in fact, so much more than that uh, by intention from the get-go. You have to remember that in 1933, Democracy, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, 
is under threat. Right. This right. is a time when, of course, after four solid years of depression, you not only have an economic crisis, you have a political crisis. This is when Hitler comes to power. And Roosevelt and the other New Dealers understood that there was a threat from similar movements in the United States and designed the New Deal to persuade people that democracy still works, even if it was flawed and limited, as, of course, they knew it was in the United States. So, you know, the New Deal is probably if not the only, certainly the largest and most successful articulation of a sense of patriotism in the United States that doesn't have anything to do with blowing things up, right? That in fact is constructive rather than destructive. And so I think that that is a valuable resource for us to remember that our politics and the life that we live has that as its basis. So this is what I was struck by in, in reading the book, you know, that I know that in the in the in the Wilson administration in the 19, 1910s, the progressive movement was particularly powerful in the U.S., that you had a series of progressive reforms that were that were enacted by Congress, but it feels like almost a night and day difference between what was done then to what was done in nineteen nineteen thirty three with FDR and the New Deal. I mean, is there any precedent in American history for the kind of transformation that the New Deal had, not just on the country itself, but on people's perception of what the government was supposed to do for them? I mean, that's the thing that strikes me as one of the biggest shifts is that the idea that Actually, no, the government has a responsibility to help people, which, is, which seemed to be a very um, controversial viewpoint uh, in 1932 during the during presidential campaign. And to some extent, it's actually still a controversial viewpoint today. Uh, but to the first point, I'm just curious, I mean, is there any precedent for this? Anything else in American history that, that resembles the transformation that the New Deal created? Well, I think you're right that there is a, there's a kind of antecedent uh, to the New Deal movement in the progressive era. And indeed, you know, many of the New Dealers like uh, Harry Hopkins and Francis Perkins and Henry Wallace and in fact, Franklin Delano Roosevelt were people who had come up through the progressive movement and its institutions in one way or another. And a lot of the programs that were passed during the New Deal were kind of things that progressives had wanted for decades and had been unable to get. So there's a relationship there. But I mean, as you say correctly, what was actually achieved, whether in the Theodore Roosevelt or the Woodrow Wilson's administrations, pales in comparison to the New Deal. So when you think about antecedents to the New Deal, where the New Deal belongs in kind of the transformative moments of American history, I think it's up there with, you know, Reconstruction and the Revolution. Those are the those are the three big, you know, sort of reimaginings of what American democracy can be uh, that we've had in our history. And maybe you would want to put the civil rights movement as the one after that, you know, but uh, that those are those are the real eras. It's not just, you know, as you say, what the government can do for us. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that, you know, the government is us and right. doesn't just exist. I mean. That the government is the way, the institution through which we meet our collective needs. So first of all, there's the concept that we have collective needs. Right. But, right. Then, but then, then, you know, there's... Yeah, the, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out. It was a novel concept. I mean, I'm struck by the quotes you have in there from, from Herbert Hoover, who really didn't seem to, to accept this idea that the, the, the federal government had a, had a responsibility to the nation as a whole to help, the, uh, you know, alleviate their suffering during the Great Depression. Yeah, Hoover was really ideologically committed to a philosophy that we would recognize as modern republicanism, right? That it was, you know, just wrong that the federal government should be involved in the generation of electrical power, that it was just wrong that the federal government should be involved in the relief of the unemployed, that it was just wrong that the federal government should be involved in preventing the banking system from collapsing utterly. 
right? That Hoover was very, very, very firmly committed to those ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a, as the great uh, dean of New Deal historians, uh, William Lechtenberg, who's still working, uh, would really? point out, he's yeah, still, is he really? He really is. Yeah, he is. I did not uh, know that. Wow. He is okay. indeed. I mean, I, That's I, impressive. I, he is as of the last time I checked, which was recently. I don't want to jinx him or anything. So. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he had a, ver- a very good new book out uh, just about five years ago, The American Presidency. And, um, you know, as he points out, you know, people have this sense that Hoover was inactive. He says, this is really wrong. Hoover was extremely active in circumscribing the ability of the federal government right. to respond to the depression. Right. Yeah. And so, so this is a question that I'm sort of struck by too. You know, uh, I wrote a book a, a long time ago, basically sort of making this argument that, you know, if you look at sort of American presidential campaigns, American elections, the, the fundamental rhetorical divide is really between the two parties, different views of what the role of government should be. Uh, and, and that has been a, a pretty underlying uh, divide in American politics for much of the 20th century, although I guess you could argue that it's not just a question of what it does, but who it benefits. Um, d- does the New Deal sort of crystallize that debate to some extent? I mean, I know this debate really begins in, you know, 1896 with the McKinley-Bryan uh, race, and you see again in the Progressive Era. But is is this kind of the moment when the two parties really diverge in what their, what the, their view is of the role of government in the lives of American people? Yeah, I think the the New Deal or even just the election of 1932, you could say, sure. is the moment when this sure. when our current party division really crystallizes. You know, and it, you could argue, as you say, that it starts sometime around 1896, where Brian really sort of stands up for the idea that the Democratic Party ought to be the party of working working people, right? Um, but it's with the New Deal that pretty much the progressive Republicans or the prominent ones really sort of become swept into the Democratic Party. I mean, not, you know, every single one, but the bulk of them. If you look at Roosevelt's cabinet, you know, you've got Ickes, who's a Republican. You've got Wallace, who's a Republican. You've got Francis Perkins, who's either a Republican or a former Republican. And his first treasury, the secretary of the treasury, William Wooden, was also a Republican. These are all people who thought of themselves as Theodore Roosevelt style progressives, but who have realized that the Republican Party is no longer longer for them. And by the election of 1936, as I mentioned before, they are joined by uh, an important uh, voting bloc, which is to say black voters who were traditionally Republicans, who have also realized that the, Dem- the Republican Party is no longer for them and become Democrats as a result of the New Deal. So you have this sudden shift of all these people who had kind of hoped for better from the Republican Party who have given up on you know, and that's where you really get the, and then you also have the ideological articulation, as I say, of the kind of the Republican Party's position is, well, whatever liberals want, we're against it. Right. Right. And, and does this sort of, I mean, my understanding, and, and I'm wrong, this sort of Hoover conservatism, uh, that you see in 32, you see in the first year of Great Depression, it continues to sort of dominate the party really until, I guess, the late forties, uh, with the, with, uh, when the, when basically the party sort of, um, reconciles itself to, you know, the, the, the American welfare state. Is that, is that relatively accurate, do you think? Is that, that sort of when that, when that kind of, you see that kind of liberal, the, the, the liberal consensus, if you will, take, uh, begin to emerge? Well, I would say if that's the liberal consensus emerging, it's very temporary because Hoover, uh, you know, Hoover's true heir is Barry Goldwater, right? Who right. says that right. his, that's you know, right. the, the book that crystallized his thinking was Hoover's book, uh, The Challenge to Liberty from 1934, uh, which is, Again, it's sort of remarkable as a text of conservative thought because 
here's this book that is obviously very upset by the New Deal. It poses a challenge to liberty, um, but never mentions the New Deal or Franklin Roosevelt or any specific New Deal programs. It's just very, you know, sort of general that there are quasi-religious principles. And Hoover thought of it this way. You know, he referred to it privately as the Ark of the Covenant. That's how he thought of this book, right? And that it contained, you know, sort of the principles on which the Republican Party should be rebuilt. So I would say that, you know, even if during Hoover's lifetime, he actually died in 64 before that election. Right. Um, during Hoover's lifetime, you're right that the Republican Party, or at least the leadership of the party, kind of accommodated itself to the New Deal. But there remained always a kind of Hoover discontent within the party, which has triumphed, right? Uh, you know, that has certainly been the mainstream of the Republican Party since Hoover's death and, and in 64. And I guess you'd be of the view that that Hoover's conservatism was genuine. I mean, he truly believed the things that he, that he said and, and what he did as, as president. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... um. It's important to note that uh, while certainly he was um, very disappointed by losing the presidency in 1932 to somebody who he regarded as, you know, sort of weak and callow and various other unattractive adjectives. Right. And he never forgave the American people. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't just personal. Right. During his presidency, he made it very clear that he regarded, for example, the federal ownership of the dam at Muscle Shoals, which later became the basis for the TVA, as a threat to American civilization, you know, yes, a threat yeah, to American values, and he, in so many words. Yeah. And he, of course, only he ratcheted up that rhetoric, you know, once the campaign came and once he lost. But he always believed in this sort of, you know, free enterprise view, ideological view of what was good for, uh, you know, America. So one thing you mentioned a second ago that I'm really was really interested in in the book is the the shift in attitudes toward Democratic Party among black voters. And so, you know, I wrote this book on the 68 election and I was always struck by how up until 1960, you know, Republicans actually did reasonably well with black voters. I think Nixon got something like 40 percent or 43 percent of the black vote. And by 68, it was it was less than 10 percent. Um, and I also think of the great the New Deal as being fundamentally sort of ignored the needs of black Americans um, and was often and was in a sense uh, FDR ignored a lot of issues that he knew would alienate Southern Democrats in order to get legislation passed. And I, I didn't realize this actually that in your book that, that he actually opposed anti-lynching legislation for precisely this reason, didn't want to upset Southern Democrats. So, but you, as you read the book, you know, there was a real shift in support, you know, uh, during FDR's presidency. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how that happened, why that happened and what the, what the ultimate impact of that was politically? Sure. Um, so going back, you know, to the 19th century, you know, the Democratic Party had been this kind of hybrid creation of the things that weren't included in the Republican Party. And those two things were the white South, sure. uh, which opposed sure. Reconstruction, right? And so that be was first the slave South and then the Jim Crow South. Right. That's a solid Democratic bloc. And they maintain a one-party state effectively in the South by violence and by disfranchising laws. Uh, you know, uh, 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 against black people. And then, though, conversely, there's the party in the North and increasingly the West, especially in cities, which is a part, a multi-ethnic party, a party of immigrants and their children. And in fact, increasingly, as time goes on, a multiracial party as black voters move to Northern cities, they become increasingly attracted to the Northern version of the Democratic Party. So there's this progressive Democratic Party in the North and the West, 
And then there's the sort of the Jim Crow Democratic Party in the South. If you want to win a national election in the early part of the 20th century, you have to somehow appeal to both sides of that party. And that's very difficult. And, you know, you can see how difficult it is in, in you know, famous episodes like the uh, endless or nearly endless uh, 1924, you know, Democratic convention in Madison Square Garden, where they were riven over the question of whether to condemn the Klan. And Brian spoke out against it, you know, and, and it really sort of put the kibosh on the party's chances for that year. The party then nominated uh, Al Smith in 1928, you know, the, the New York uh, politician who was an Irish Catholic and, uh, you know, was absolutely destroyed because a lot of their white Southern voters, uh, you know, defected because they weren't going to vote for a Catholic. So this, this split party that's very hard to pull together at the national level, Roosevelt manages it in 1932, in part because he is both a New Yorker and maintains a winter residence in Georgia and kind of talks out of both sides of his mouth about, you know, whether he's a Southerner or whether he's a Northerner and scrupulously avoids, I mean, scrupulous is the wrong word, rigorous avoids uh, addressing uh, civil rights as an issue, even though he is expressly asked by the president of the NAACP during the 1932 campaign. He says, I just don't want to touch that. That having been said, uh, there are a number of Black voters who are attracted to Al Smith's campaign in 28, mm. because Black voters' leanings are towards more socially liberal policies already. There are a few more who are attracted to Roosevelt's campaign in 1932. The Roosevelt campaign's polling quietly suggests that they might do well among Black voters in Northern cities. And so they have a special, you know, sort of group of speakers who go to speak in the Black community and say, the New Deal will be good for you because it's good for people who don't have jobs and Black people are overrepresented among that group. And then when that turns out to be true during Roosevelt's first term, Black voters switch essentially in a block almost, you know, as a supermajority of black voters vote for Roosevelt in 36. And that's the beginning of, you know, the black uh, voters supporting the Democratic Party. As you say, some still support Republicans, particularly Eisenhower. And then there's a residual Eisenhower uh, kind of aura around Nixon in 60. But, you know, basically the majority of black voters support Democrats and become Democrats you know, as a result of the New Deal. Now, why is that? It's because, first of all, you know, the New Deal delivers, as I said, on that promise of 32, particularly with the um, public works agencies that are run out of Washington. So if they're federally run, like if they're run by Harold Dickies, who had been active in the NAACP, like the Public Works Administration, you know, not only do they have a non-discrimination policy, they hire a black economist named Robert Weaver, who would later be the first uh, African-American cabinet secretary in American history under Johnson, right, to design for them, you know, a sort of what we would recognize as an affirmative action policy, where if there's a pattern of discrimination in hiring, you know, you can penalize the employer. And Weaver will say that this is a very effective in, in sort of preventing discrimination of public works, maybe more so with the Works Progress Administration, which is run by Harry Hopkins, who is also in favor of civil rights. And that's where the federal government is directly hiring people to do public works. And again, it's prohibited from discriminating on the basis of race, first as a matter of policy and later as a matter of law. It becomes the avenue for a lot of black workers, first of all, to get a better wage than they would have gotten through the depression. And second of all, for them to enter into white collar professions, uh, you know, as the urban league points out during the depression. So the new deal, um, 
you know, serves that purpose for African-Americans during the Depression, even as Roosevelt continues to kind of, you know, concede things to the Southern wing of the party. So if you have locally run New Deal programs, like, for example, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is in the Tennessee River Valley, as will not surprise you, which is the birthplace of the original Ku Klux Klan, right. then it's racial politics will be what you would expect them to be, it's, yeah. you know. In fact, they're probably a little better than you would expect them to be. I mean, it has segregated works, but it does have, you know, black foremen and black crews who, again, have jobs, right? So that's why black voters support the New Deal. And Roosevelt ultimately, you know, I mean, in my view, it's not remarkable that Roosevelt doesn't attack Jim Crow right away. What's remarkable is that his administration attacks Jim Crow at all, oh, yeah. is, which it does yeah. in the latter part of his second term when his, uh, when his uh, Justice Department creates uh, the Civil Liberties Unit, which will later be the Civil Rights Division, and begins to bring voting rights cases, right. you know, which, is, which is important. Um, so this actually, you raised a point that I, uh, readers of the uh, newsletter will know I've, I'm sort of obsessed with right now, which is that you talk about a Democratic Party that is not homogenous at all, uh, and a Republican Party that to some extent isn't really homogenous either. I mean, it's more homogenous, I suppose, but you have, as you mentioned, uh, Republicans like uh, Francis Perkins and uh, Henry Wallace and so forth, who end up working in, you know, in the Roosevelt administration. Um, this is something that I think is sort of a little misunderstood about the where, where we are today and where we were 90 years ago, in the sense that, uh, or even 50, 60 years ago, that you could actually pass legislation with Republicans and Democrats supporting it because there was actually commonality between Republicans and Democrats. For example, Northeastern Republicans often had similar priorities to Northeastern Democrats. Um, and Dem- Northeastern Democrats had different priorities than Southern Democrats. Um, that just isn't the case today. Uh, and I guess I, from your perspective as a historian, I mean, do you, the situation we have now, where we have basically three senators from each party who represent states won by the other party's uh, presidential uh, nominee, this is somewhat a presidential candidate, I should say. This is somewhat, um, not somewhat, this is unprecedented in American history, is it not? At least in the party structure that we've we've been used to. Yeah, it's anomalous. I mean, and as I don't have to tell you uh, or your your listeners or readers, but I mean, I will point out the way that uh, the Republicans have, you know, sort of made use of the Senate's uh, rules to turn it into a roadblock to everything, including the ordinary functioning of government is also anomalous right. uh, in history, right? But, um, but yeah, your bigger point is absolutely correct. The, the parties never used to be ideological vehicles to the extent that they have really become. Yeah, right? that's, that's what we're um, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and this was owing to the peculiar history of the United States with, uh, you know, section, if not actually state, being the sort of informing uh, force of partisan uh, leadership. And um, a- a- as you correctly say, you know, there's this kind of glib response to people saying, well, Roosevelt did this. And they say, oh, yes, but look at Roosevelt's uh, majorities in the Congress. That's that's a very silly thing to say, because, of course, that's not Roosevelt's majority. Roosevelt's majority is some of those Democrats and some of the Republicans. It is not all of the Democrats, because, again, you know, the Southern Democrats are a roadblock to a lot of what the New Dealers want to do, you know? So, um, you, yeah, you, you're right that, that, that Roosevelt had to have cross-party majorities to do what he wanted to do, especially, um, uh, you know, he had to have shifting majorities. He had yes. different people supporting different initiatives. 
And that became even truer once you get closer and he's trying to, you know, get uh, aid to the allies kind of stuff through Congress is his majority shift yet again. So it's, it's really quite dicey and you have to do a lot more work uh, in terms of cross party uh, uh, coalitions. Right. It seems to me that the, the, the greatest allegiance is more to the section or region than it is the party. Uh, certainly among Southern Democrats, that is almost certainly the case. I mean, and you look at this, I mean, in the great society too. Uh, you know, obviously the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act relied on Northern Republican votes to, to, to become law. Um, and it's, I sort of, I think it's, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I think is sort of missed about where we are in American politics, like why, for example, Biden has been more successful than, uh, Barack Obama was 12 years ago when he had 60 seats for a brief time in the U.S. Senate is that you don't really have any, any moderate Democrats anymore. And you had a whole bunch of them in, uh, 19, in 2009. Uh, and that's, that's a difference that I think most people, I don't, don't think can really fully appreciate how, how significant change that is, at least, and how stuff gets done in Congress. Yeah. I mean, it, it's odd because, um, you know, Joe Biden's, uh, entry into public life occurred the year I was born. And uh, you can probably tell by looking at me, I'm not a youthful man. So, <laughs> you know, he's been around for a long time. And the bulk of his career, and indeed the bulk of his personal influence, has been during a period when the Democratic Party is what, for lack of a better word, we're going to call neoliberal, right? Which is to say, not all that enthusiastic about the New Deal. In fact, many times running away from the legacy of the New Deal. And as you correctly say, the Great Society, because they felt burned by what happened, as I don't have to tell you, particularly in 1968, right? And so they, they really sort of spent decades sort of, you know, learning what I view as the wrong lessons anyway from that story. And Biden, that's Biden's career until about, you know, January of this year, <laughs> right? And, then, and, and I, I don't, I mean, I obviously have no idea what's going on in his head. I'm not a Biden biographer or sort of a, even a Biden observer, except in as much as I read the news like anybody else. But my hunch is maybe that's where his roots are. I mean, he was born during the Roosevelt presidency, right? And, you know, he grew up in that Democratic right. Party. Right. But also he knows where the party is. As you've just said, the Democratic Party is now in a different place. And he's a very good politician. And so he is going where the party is. And the progressive caucus of the party is very important now. Yeah. And so Biden is allowing him to, he probably also notices how um, the uh, Obama administration response of 2009 was substantially ineffective in many ways in serving the party's constituents. Right. And I think I've always said this, the most salient fact I think that you can come up with about Joe Biden is that when he was a senator, he was always on the fence. I don't mean from Democrats, Republicans, I mean between liberal and moderate Democrats. He was always somewhere in the middle. And I think to some extent he still is today. It's just that the, the, uh, uh, the party has moved much more to the left. And you have very, you know, at this point, you really have one true moderate sort of, you know, blue dog Democrat in the U.S. Senate, and that's Joe Manchin. Uh, and I'm even, I'm not even sure Blue Dog is the right, you're just, you describe him. He's just a iconoclastic Democrat, I suppose. He's actually always been quite good on union issues, right? He has so, actually, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Yes. He's a Democrat who's odd because, you know, and I mean, uh, we, I think if you go back to sort of 09 or 2010, you had these Democrats who were very concerned about, do we look moderate enough to appeal to our red state voters? And that just is not an issue that many Democrats worry about anymore, except for Joe Manchin. 
And that is a really big shift. Um, I want to talk more about Biden, but I want to just go back to one thing from the book, which I think really is important that, that I think also can inform a little bit of talking about what's happening today. And that is you make a point, and you talked about this earlier, but at, at, you mentioned this frequently in the book, that the New Deal was not just viewed as an economic relief package, but was viewed fundamentally as a way to restore democracy in America. And that, to me, is a really interesting concept. And one, one of the ways it, it did that was to to create this idea or to at least, you know, uh, yeah, inform this idea among Americans that the government was there to help them and on their side. Uh, it, it, you know, did, to some extent, do you think that was actually, that was their motivation? Was it successful, do you think? Well, I do think it was successful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, one of the reasons that uh, Roosevelt was able to articulate the war aims that he did for the United States when it came time to actually go to war against the the fascist powers, right? That, you know, they had been building up this view of what, uh, you know, sort of American patriotism was like, so that right. by the time you got into 1941, you know, in January, long before the United States goes to war, Roosevelt articulates what the war aims for the United States will be. He says, you know, this is going to be a war for freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear. Right. These are very New Deal notions, particularly freedom from want, which is core to Roosevelt's philosophy as he articulates it throughout the 1930s. One of the phrases he likes to trot out, which he attributes to an English jurist, is that, you know, necessitous men are not free men, that you really need to have your basic needs met yeah. if you want to be a free citizen of a democracy. And that observation has different meanings, Roosevelt believes, in an industrial era than it did in a predominantly agricultural era. And the New Deal really all sort of flows from that, that the basis of you know the words social security is to provide people with what they need so that they can then be free to have a decent working life, have decent leisure hours, have, you know, the time to make and enjoy art, you know, and to live a civilized life. I mean, be, another to be, you might say, yeah, secure. to be secure, but I mean, even just to, you know, because that's what makes you truly free, right? As Roosevelt right. says, you know, in a democracy, you don't just need enough to live on, you need something to live for, right? Mm -hmm. And that means you need to have time and space and that's what, you know, these sort of technical, boring terms like, you know, minimum wage and maximum hours give you, right, is time with your family, with your friends, right? right? right. Time for art, time for theater, time for relaxation. And the New Deal also, of course, builds the public spaces for those things. So right. we all have places to go to enjoy, you know, this common life together. I mean, that's that's the success of this is to say, look, the state is here for you. You know, the state is you. We are together in this, and this is the life we want to build for ourselves. I mean, in a sense, you could argue it breeds a bit of a, a parochialism of saying, you know, this is the we're the party that gives social security. We're the party that basically fixed the economy. We're the party that created all these great programs. And to a large extent, I mean, I think, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong, but that 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 perspective, at least among among Americans, uh, you know, bolstered Democratic Party for for decades. That people saw them as the party of the working man, the party of uh, that you know of 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 government uh, services that they liked. And of course that changes in the, in the 60s. Now, I guess my question a little bit is, can, can Joe Biden, if he embarks on a similar kind of ambitious, progressive, uh, um, you know, legislation like, like the New Deal, can he also, is it possible, do you think, in this day and age to create that kind of mindset among Americans to view the government a different way, but also to view, to see the link between what he's trying to accomplish, uh, with infrastructure, with human security, 
in the sense in, in, as patriotic uh, endeavors. Yeah, I mean, I'm not by nature uh, an optimistic fella, but, uh, you know, just just at the moment, you know, the 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 American jobs plan, the infrastructure bill that's before uh, Congress now, if that goes through in anything like the form in which it's been proposed, you know, Biden might have a shot at doing what you suggest, that is to say, persuading Americans that, you know, he can and his party can deliver for everyone. I mean, that's the thing about the New Deal is its breadth and ubiquity, as I said at the start, right, is very important. This proposal is big enough and broad enough that it has a shot at doing that, right? It's making its impact felt throughout the country so that people will either get jobs or get money or get contracts or at least just see work that's been done in their community by this program, and if the Biden administration is more astute about this than the Obama administration, there will be a sign on it saying, you know, that this is brought to you by the American Jobs Plan. But it's, right? I guess it's fair to say, too, it's a very different kind of approach. I mean, I, in, the, in the book, you talk a lot about public works projects, employing people, you know, not only just to build roads or to build highways or build bridges, but also to, to paint and to, you know, to make music. Um, and I, I, it feels as though what you're looking at now is something very different, not the same kind of, I mean, you have infrastructure projects, obviously, but a lot of, for example, that was part of the, um, the, uh, rescue plan and what is part of the, because of the next level, the build back better part is much more about providing services, providing benefits to people. Um, you know, do, do you think there, is there something about the new deal and the extent to which it literally employed people and said, here's a, a check from the government to go do this. And here's some tangible that it creates, creates a, a different, effectiveness than say, here's a, uh, a, a child task credit that you can get in, in perpetuity. Well, I mean, I, again, I think, you know, when you, when you describe it, that, that is more what the American Rescue Plan is. And I think that that's, that's not that new deal, right? That is right. straight up Keynesian stimulus, right? Which is fine as far as it goes. But, you know, the, the jobs plan seems a bit more New Deal in spirit, right? I mean, it's, you're actually offering to hire a lot of people to build a lot of stuff, you know, to address, uh, energy and infrastructure deficiencies. And, uh, you know, I, that, that, I think that does, I mean, certainly Roosevelt believed and people like Hopkins and Ickes and Perkins believed that hiring people was really the key, that you're creating a relationship between people and their government that is essential to democracy, that writing a check doesn't really do it, right? It's like actually doing the work together with other people who are similarly employed that is important. Um, you know, and to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing like the uh, arts programs of the WPA uh, being proposed yeah. at the moment, which is a darn shame. I do see that uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Markey have proposed a civilian climate corps, which is obviously harking back to the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, established in 1933, which would presumably do similar kinds of work. And, you know, the, the CCC, the original Civilian Conservation Corps, was instrumental in creating for Americans a consciousness of, you know, mm. conservation of nature. And I would assume that a civilian climate corps would be targeted at doing the same kind of thing. So there, there's still hope for some of those New Deal type effects. I just, I just wonder too, also, just because you have a different kind of economy, different, you know, we have a much more service oriented than we are manufacturing oriented economy. And I wonder if that has an impact as well. But, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting questions from uh, what Biden is trying to do is will this change the relationship between vote between citizens 
and their elected officials. And I think that's a question that we don't know the answer to yet. Uh, and it'll be, and I think the New Deal provides some interesting antecedents for that. I mean, I assume you agree with that. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, look, the uh, the more cynical way of, of describing what I've just been laying out for you with all this wonderful talk about democracy is, of course, the famous Harry Hopkins line about how we shall tax and tax and spend and spend and elect and elect, right? <laughs> Which people often leave off that last part, but it's very important, right? Hopkins right. understood that good policy is good politics. If you deliver for people, they right. will vote for you. You know, which is, it's, it seems like a weird thing to say in this age of, we've been coming off decades of politicians telling us, no, our job is to make your lives miserable. Right. And right. that's why you will respect us, you know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, you take, know, the, uh, take your medicine and that's going right. to make you respect us more and see right, us. Right. Exactly. Online. Yeah. But, uh, you know, maybe we'll be embarking on an age more where they're going to sort of uh, deliver the kind of uh, public sphere that we want. Now, so let me ask you this last thing. I, this is what I'm, I'm sort of curious about. Having written this book about the New Deal and seeing how it impacted the country, if you had a chance to speak to Joe Biden about <laughs> about the New Deal uh, and about his program, you know, what 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 do you think you should take away from what happened you know, almost 90 years ago uh, with FDR's New Deal and in, in thinking about what he's trying to accomplish today? Well, I think that some of what I would want to say would simply be to reinforce clearly what the administration is already thinking. I mean, his speech, uh, was it only last week? I think it was last week where last he, week too, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he talked about Roosevelt as being somebody who sought to preserve American democracy through a crisis. So thumbs up, you know, for getting that fundamental fact uh, about the New Deal and understanding that that's what would be at the basis of passing the jobs plan. I, you know, looking a little bit beyond that, I think the thing to remember is it was the success of the early New Deal that bought the Roosevelt administration the ability to get the larger sort of what's sometimes called the second New Deal, the right. bigger package of, 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 of reforms, which included Social Security, unemployment insurance, and, and, and all of that stuff in 1935. And so remember, the Democrats won even bigger majorities in the 1934 midterm elections, and that's rooted in the success of the first bit of the New Deal. So, right. you know, with the rescue plan, if they can get the jobs plan, they have a good shot at doing well in the midterms and moving forward to do, you know, even more of what they want to do in the second half of Biden's term. But it sounds like I don't really need to tell them that. It sounds like they've got that all worked out. I mean, I, you sound like you've been, I mean, and I guess that's always a question I, I'm always curious to ask people. I mean, I have been surprised and impressed with the way that the Biden administration has handled this so far. They seem to have a very different attitude toward criticism, toward public criticism in particular, um, different attitude toward, you know, I, you and I probably can are old enough to remember when Democrats were afraid to sound like tax and spend Democrats, afraid to have a government spending. This is not a problem that Joe Biden seems to have. Um, that is a change, but I think it also seems to be one reflected by the, the where the party has moved to. Uh, and also, I guess something where the country has moved to. Um, I, that is, that is sort of anything. And I think with, with, I, curious with Roosevelt, I mean, one thing I'm always struck by with Roosevelt is that a lot of his early rhetoric, uh, you know, especially in the, especially in the second, he ran for re-election in 36, was oriented not about fears from the right, but fears from the left, right? Fears from the, uh, Zui Longs of the world. It's a very different kind of political environment that you're in. I mean, in now for Biden, who still has a, a granted a, 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 a weakened Republican Party, but still one that has, that has a lot of a lot of power and a lot of assets, as opposed to the Republican Party that that by 1934-36 was pretty weak that Roosevelt was dealing with. That just seems like a, a huge difference. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that 
you know, okay, you want to, we're going back to advice to give to Joe Biden from the era of the New Deal. You know, Roosevelt was very effective as a party builder, or you might say Jim Farley was very effective as a party that's builder. Right. You know, that's, that's an important thing to remember. I mean, and again, this is something I obviously wouldn't need to tell the president, but is worth emphasizing here in our discussion. The Supreme Court and the federal judiciary generally are a big obstacle for you. You know, Roosevelt's administration knew all of those things and, 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 and worked on those things. So, you know, building an effective party for the future to ensure that, you know, it's sort of institutionally successful, you know, no matter who's at the helm is something we haven't seen Democratic presidents do in a long time. Yeah. Uh, this would be a good opportunity to do that. And and again, as you point out correctly, I think Biden's willingness to listen to criticism from within the party, uh, which has already been exhibited on a couple of occasions, yeah. is, is, is heartening in that respect. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that, that you know, we, we've already seen him kind of make a move at mentioning the federal judiciary. <laughs> I don't I don't know uh, how that will eventuate. You know, I think that's a very dicey issue and probably kicking the can down the road at the moment is probably wise. Um, well, this some, is where I would see a parallel with him and Roosevelt. Yeah. They do seem to yeah. pick their battles where right. they where they think they can win them. Right. I mean, the, the, the obvious immediate need of the moment when Biden came into office was to address the pandemic, you know, effectively. That's probably what the people voted for him for in many respects, right? So he seems to have gotten us off on the right foot there. And that bought him some goodwill. So now he can say the jobs plan seems like a, a great thing, you know, um, and it might be okay with him if uh, Justice Breyer kind of forestalls retiring for a little bit, just so he doesn't have to have that fight, you know, sure. right now today. Yeah. But, you know, a 50 vote majority in the Senate is very uh, slender and, uh, you know, you don't want to delay anything for too long. So it, it is it is a fine line to have to walk. And I don't envy him having to make those kinds of decisions. Well, I just think I'll the last thing I'll say is just that, you know, one thing I think that's forgotten about Roosevelt is that he was a, a master politician, one of the greatest in American history. Uh, and, you know, that's that's. What I think I would think what made him such a successful president, you know, was that he was so good at politics, so good at, at, at thwarting his opponents. But as you mentioned, so good at building his own democratic coalitions, so good at crafting messages that appeal to a broad cross section of Americans. And I think, you know, Rose, I, I, Biden has has shown some of those tendencies that he gets the politics of this pretty well, better than a lot of people who I think. Uh, not me, but others who criticize him or others who sort of say he should do something differently. I think he's a much smarter politics than people realize. I think that's one of the reasons why he's been successful so far. Um, and I think it's why Roosevelt was so successful, uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago. I think that's true. I think that, uh, you know, they obviously have different skill sets in many respects. Roosevelt was, I think, a much easier with the press, uh, you know, and sort of capable of endlessly charming reporters. Sure. Uh, that doesn't seem to be Biden's skill set, you know, and, and fine. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, he does seem to kind of handle uh, the media reasonably well or have it handled reasonably well by his folks. And as you correctly observe at the moment, anyway, he seems to be threading a political needle that requires a considerable degree of skill to handle. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, listen, this was really uh, great. I really appreciate you taking the time, and, and I really enjoyed the book, and I can't recommend enough to, to all the listeners out there to check out uh, Why the New Deal Matters. You can buy it at uh, any bookstore, Amazon, what have you, if you want, and it's a great book. And, and, I've, and I've read some of Eric's other books. They're all great. You should check them out if you can. So, Eric, thank you for taking the time. Great conversation, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much.